This is Ideas at the House, a podcast that brings the talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House directly to your ears. Now, boys are often expected to conform to a culture that regards violence, dominance and emotional repression as masculine. So how are gender norms enforced? And how are sweet little boys socialised into men who do harm? In today's podcast from All About Women 2019, we ask why men are constantly required to man up. TV host Osher Ginsberg, writer Clementine Ford and filmmaker Von Petiag joined me in the concert hall to discuss how we can all work to dismantle sexism. and welcome to this panel about toxic masculinity. Now, I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting here on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to all First Nations people who are in the house tonight. <laughs> toxic masculinity is a term that's coming into more frequent use of late, and I guess it's, a way, it's an idea that the way that boys and men are commonly acculturated are pretty shabby. Toxic masculinity is when your mum tells you to do the dishes and clean the kitchen when all your brother has to do is carry a bucket of garbage to the back door. It's when a three-year-old little boy is made to feel sick and ashamed because he wants to dress up as a princess. It's when you don't show legitimate anger at a belittling colleague because you don't want to be called hysterical. It's when you're getting paid less than a man for doing the same job. It's when you, const it's when you constantly monitor your surroundings for signs of danger and your heart leaps with fear when you're walking home at night and a strange man says hello. It's when your boyfriend doesn't want you to leave. At its best, toxic masculinity is limiting and discriminatory, and at its worst, it's lethal. So in order to introduce this panel, and particularly uh, Clementine Ford, our first guest on the panel, I thought it would be useful in the context of this conversation to utilise the way she's been described in various Reddit threads that I've been reading. So if you could please welcome this man-hating, frigid, fat slut who was too ugly to be raped and needs to get back into the kitchen right now and make me a sandwich. <laughs> Our second guest is Von Petiak. Um, who is a filmmaker, actor and screenwriter. He was born in Western Sydney into a Filipino family and his work focuses on issues of masculinity, racism and queer identity. Um, and his short film is called Tom Girl. It's currently on SBS On Demand and you all need to go home and watch it because it is bloody lovely. Osha Ginsberg. Osha, mate, you have the honour of being the first ever cis-straight white man to speak at All About Women. <laughs> I thought that... <laughs> and the last. I, <laughs> I thought that we could open the coven doors up a little bit and let, let him in to hear the secret women's business. And look, I think it's really important that you're here because, honestly, we don't, get enough, we don't hear enough from people like you in today's <laughs> society. So... No, seriously, most of you will know Osher as the host of The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, Bachelor in Paradise, but by day, he's a staunch feminist ally, and I'm really, really pleased he's here. Thank you very much for coming, Osher. <laughs> so now, I just feel like it would be useful, probably, to, to kind of really get to the nub of this 
this term that we're discussing. And I wonder whether we could do that by talking about some of your experiences with toxic masculinity or with masculine codes or things that you in your own life have had to deal with that kind of sort of touch into these broader themes that we're talking about. Clementine, I mean... Oh, gosh, where do you start? Um, <laughs> I've, I feel like the problem with the term toxic masculinity, which is a great term and one that I use all the time, is that a lot of people, as with you know so many political terms, willfully misunderstand it. And they think that what you're saying is that all masculinity is toxic, as opposed to masculinity can be weaponized in really toxic ways that causes harm to the men who are socialized into masculinity and also the people who they project the harmful nature, the nature of that masculinity onto. And in my book, Boys Will Be Boys, which covers a whole range of different, um, different topics that are about that received harm and the projected harm, you know, from the way that we code gender in children before they're even born, to the, the disparity of labor in the home, to the way that boys are socialized to, um, you know, particularly in a modern era of internet flame wars and, you know, young boys who feel very aggrieved at the, the sense that feminism is, is getting too much of a stronghold and, and even as young as 15 feeling like they need to fight back against that. You know, if you lift one person up, that's often at the expense of exactly. it. And you, and, you know, you wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> of course we want women to, to move ahead, but only so their overall place down here is maintained. <laughs> um, that actually, like these, these are harmful practices that cause distress to all people. Mm -hmm. And so, in my book, I say that you know this book is not about how men are shit. It's about how the world that we live in enables and encourages men to to do and get away with deeply shitty things. But of course, Osher, I mean, you know, men are also sort of, you know, it's a problem for men as well. It's not a problem that just women face. Oh, absolutely, and and certainly when you asked me to be on this panel, I, th I thought a lot about it. I'm I'm number two of four boys. Um, my mum raised us uh, by herself from the age of eleven, and I went to an all boys school. So the only women I knew that went my mum were my accounting teacher and my music teacher. <laughs> and so I found myself like as a as a kind of teenager, young young guy, um, you know. In the schoolyard, someone would make a joke or something, and at first you go, ha ha, ha ha, because it was kind of a bit icky, made me feel icky in my tummy, but I laughed because I wanted those people to accept me, right? And then soon enough, I started saying those things because I wanted them to, you know, accept me. And then soon enough, those things started to become the way that I saw the world. And then those things osmosed into my behavior and what that did ultimately. And then I kind of got spat out into a, a if any of you work in media, you'll know that uh, it's a very female dominant workforce and I got spat out into this female dominant workforce of the media and I had a very rough entry <laughs> into that um, because of how I had kind of osmosed these behaviors about what women were and were capable of and, and um, I was very lucky to have um, some people that you, uh, you probably don't know but certainly one that you do, the name of Yumi Steins, just kindly go, you shouldn't say that <laughs> and, and very kindly kind of shepherded me towards a, a way of unlearning. Um, but it was, it was just so kind of, not insidious, it just almost just happened, you know, that these things that weren't initially made me feel icky, suddenly I started doing and saying for want of acceptance. And I, I certainly, when I th thought about toxic masculinity, it very rarely happens in a vacuum, and it seems to be always be too 
wanting the approval of another male nearby or on the group or observing as a way of wanting that approval and that's certainly been my experience of it. Do you relate to those sorts of things, Vaughn, or did you have a different experience? No, no, no. Um, actually, really similar. So, the youngest of three boys, um, my mom was very, just, she was the head of the family. My dad stood no chance. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, for me, toxic masculinity, I, I know sometimes it is very institutionally driven from, I, in terms of representing it in the news, we, we often look at it um, from an institutional level. But I think for, for me, it is a very culminative um, issue as well, like it does exist in the in-between, like the small moments of exchange. Um, when I was coming here actually, I, I was getting armed with my toxic masculinity story, like, oh no, which one will I choose? Um, and <laughs> it was like, I, I haven't really, I feel like I haven't experienced violence per se, but I remember when I was seven, I had a bike and it was pink um, because my family is a migrant family and we kind of had secondhand second-hand bikes, and I remember just riding it around, and this kid just would not stop making fun of me, to the point where I would go home crying and ask my dad to paint my bike. So I had this atrocious gray bike for about a year, but um, I think it's in retrospect that I kind of see, like, wow, that really coded me to, and warped my sense of, you know, color. And I mean, I'm wearing pink now to kind of reclaim that, but. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there's a lot to be said, though, about the way that you know, really little children are kind of policed almost. I mean, you have a gorgeous, gorgeous little son. He is actually the most gorgeous son in the world. The most gorgeous son <laughs> in the world. I can say that because I have a daughter. Um, <laughs> did you, when he was, you know, when he was born, when he had a penis, did you think, how am I going to do this? How am I going to shepherd this little thing mm. through the first years of his life and make him safe and himself whatever he wants to be. Yeah, I mean, uh, firstly I'll say that we, uh, you know, he was assigned male at birth yeah. and we were raising him for the foreseeable future as a boy and obviously that might change at some point and we will welcome whoever they decide to be um, or wh whoever they have always been. Uh, but this is the kind of the premise that we're going with at the moment and I felt we found out the sex beforehand, um, which is a problematic thing in and of itself, you know, that this, because it's, that's how the coding begins. And I, what we chose to do was not tell anyone who asked what the sex of the baby was, because I know from my own research and my own just general observation how easily those ideas then start to steep into people's minds. Um, so we wanted to have a blank slate, because all babies are born as blank slates, and it's only what we project onto them that dictates their behavior. Um, for me, the problem with, the problem slash challenge with raising a child coded as an assigned male in this world is that it is an unequal world. And he has been born into the most privileged echelon, really, that he can be. He's white. Uh, presumably, if he stays cis, then he would be cis. He, he may be gay or straight, but he'll still be white. Um, and if, he, if he's a boy, then he's a boy, and, and all the power and privilege that comes with that. And I really was aware of the fact that a lot of people don't want to engage with the prospect and possibility of the harm that their sons can do. And I feel like that's something that we um, 
across the board. It's understandable, of course, no one wants to think of their children as growing up to be potentially criminal or harmful to others. But it's a reality that we actually need to confront because we know that one in three women have experienced sexual violence. And that sexual violence is perpetrated in a large majority, over 95% of it, by men. And those men come from somewhere. And they don't come from, you know, they don't fall out of the wall. They don't, and they don't come from families that don't love and care about them. They come from families who, in lots of cases, defend them and excuse them and say, well, it can't possibly have been this way because this is my son and I love him and he would never do anything like that. But we actually do need to engage with the reality that if there is one group of people that, in a large part, are the demographic responsible for these crimes that not just significantly affect, but in, in a lot of cases actually derail the lives of others, then we need to be prepared for that possibility. So for me, I want to, you know, Bell Hooks wrote about how the first act of violence that, that patriarchy demands of males is not violence towards, them, towards women, mm -hmm. but violence towards themselves. So I'm aware of these two competing kind of um, problems. One is, one is that patriarchy does harm men and it does cause them to, as your experience was, and as your experience was, Vaughn, to um, distinguish, distinguish themselves against compassion and empathy and softness and kindness in order to compete in the hierarchy of men. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a harm that's being done to them that, you know, in the most extreme cases, the, the biggest killer of men in this country between 18 and 45 across, you know, across a whole demographic of young men is suicide. Mm. That's all deeply rooted in that stuff. And yet at the same time, you don't want to, you need to be aware of the possibility that you're raising boys who could cause harm to others. So how does patriarchy instill harm against young boys and how, in some cases, does it encourage those boys to weaponize that harm against other people? And what do we do to dismantle that problem? I mean, it's, it's, it is the problem, really, isn't it? Um, Von, your film, Tom, Go Tom Girl, tells the story of a kid um, who's also, like you, Filipino, um, who is learning about bakla culture, right? Mm. Can you <clears throat> just tell us what that is quickly? What yes, so bakla is uh, the most visible form of LGBT community in Philippines. It's kind of where men cross-dress as women, but it's a, it's a term that's kind of... Uh, in it's very broad encompassing, so it kind of just means queer male in general. It doesn't really translate. It's hard to translate into English. It's really it? hard to translate, yeah. Yeah, yeah so um, one of the things about that film, the, the film is from the perspective of a boy who, who has an uncle who um, is Bakla, and the boy is getting teased at school and is trying to sort of, and bullied at school, and is trying to navigate his way through. How much did you draw from your own experience from that? Yeah, um, well, it's, it's actually really funny um, we're talking about birth because my mom really wanted a girl. So my name was meant to be... The youngest of three guys. Yep, youngest right? of yeah. brothers, right? So uh, my name was meant to be Yvonne, and I'm sure she's ashamed I'm telling her <laughs> telling this story now. But um, yeah, so I was meant to be named Yvonne, and she did not want to check the sex, and she just kind of gave birth and was like, oh, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, the name was perfect. Um, and, you know, like, that's how I became Von. Um, but, yeah, growing up, I guess, in a Filipino household, it was a very different, uh, I guess, a very different childhood experience of, of masculinity. I, I think, for me, um, it is 
I, I see it as an intersectional issue. So when I like to talk about masculinity, it's often diasporic, like it's a very Australian issue. And I remember when I met my cousin Norman in the Philippines, who was Bakla, I just thought he was the best. I just loved him so much. You know, he would wear makeup and wear wigs and wear heels and just, it was the best time. Like I would, I would dress up like him too and we'd kind of go out and have fun. And it was only when I came back to Australia when I started telling all my friends, like, oh my God, my cousin Norman, he's amazing. They just were like, oh, that's weird. You know, that's really weird. And then this, it, it went further because I went to a Catholic school where um, they banned us from saying the word gay in a derogatory way. They just were like, you can't say that. So all these white kids actually started using buckla as, as a term. Oh. As a pejorative term? Yeah, they, they weaponized it. And they were like, you're buckla, you're buckla. And it was like, but my memory, and you know, like what I understand of my culture is being put out in this way, it was, it was really damaging, I think, um, for me personally. So the film, Justin, yeah, Justin kind of goes through that. And I really was conscious to make a film that celebrates the difference instead of, instead of kind of looks at the trauma because I think um, that's kind of how I dealt with that. I was like, well, you know, like my memories are, are beautiful and I, and I really want to honor that instead of kind of looking at that violence and trauma. I mean, it's kind of inconceivable for somebody in our culture to sort of think about a situation. It's like a utopia <laughs> where people can, you know, boys can dress in that way and not be subject to ridicule or their parents aren't subject to, you know, condemnation. Um, parents in often, often are the ones who are... Who are doing the doing condemning. The yeah, that's actually really true. I was thinking, though, more, Clem, of the times that you put photographs of your son on social media, you know, doing things that he might want to do, like wear a dress or lipstick or whatever, and the internet loses its shit, um, you know. Yeah, I mean, I never, I, I try and be really careful with his identity. I don't post pictures of mm. his face, but, um, you know, he's two years old, mm. and two-year-old children dress generally love to dress up, and because they spend most of their time with their mums, they love to do what their mums are doing, and I wear makeup, and so when I'm putting my makeup on, he wants to have his gold lipstick on and his red lipstick on, and he gets my makeup brush, and he kind of wipes it across his face. Um, but he also likes to do other things that are traditionally more associated with... Coded masculine. Yeah, he likes playing with cars, but so do a lot of girls, you yeah. know? And no one ever looks at him playing with cars and makes a big deal about how I'm parenting him. But if I post, and, and you know, I do acknowledge that, that those parts of his personality as well. But I mean, I've had people who, this is extreme, and I know that it's, it's a certain kind of person who wants to attack me over, over these actions. But I've had people who've reported me to child services because I've, I've, and child services not followed up with me, thank God, because they haven't wasted their time with it. But they've, certainly these people have said that they've reported me to child services for something as simple as me having dressed him in leopard print leggings and a pink jumper. Mm. Because clearly I'm trying You're to... You're an abuser, obviously. I'm abusing him and I'm trying to, I'm trying to raise him as a girl and destroy his masculinity or... You know, I just think... Um, You're not raising him as a girl or a boy, really. Well, I'm just raising, trying to raise him as a human, you know, and, and it's, it's really interesting and also deeply sad what Vaughn says, and it's a truth about Australian society that it's, it's so <sighs> held in the thrall of this idea of what masculinity is, and it's, it's so fucking fragile and terrified. And on the one hand, 
it holds on to this idea that men are so strong and men are so capable and that's why men are, you know, uh, the ones who dominate leadership roles. But they're so fragile about everything. And there's a... Um, <laughs> no, but I mean, like, to be, to be threatened by... You know, another thing that my son loves to do is, is to sweep. Because he see, if he sees me sweeping the floor, then he gets, he's got his own little broom and he goes, oh, I've got to get my broom and sweep. And, you know, it's the, it's the things that people pick and choose to associate with expressions of identity that then they, they just attach all of these, you know, uh, unfounded biological impulses to. So because he likes playing with cars and running around and he's got a lot of energy, oh, he's such a boy, isn't he? He's such a boy. Boys love running around. They love playing, they love playing with wheels. It's just a boy thing. But no one ever looks at him sweeping and says, oh, he loves cleaning up, doesn't he? He's just a boy. <laughs> He's such a boy. Such a boy. He loves to clean. Yeah. And, and I just think, you know, I look at him and I don't think it's too late for men of, a, of any generation to have some of the masculine coding and, and patriarchal damage that's been done to them unpacked and healed. I don't think that we can approach it thinking that it's too late for anybody. It may be that, you know, as with a lot of women who have come to a feminist awareness and understanding much later in life, that they experience a degree of trauma and grief over what it is that they've missed out on. And I certainly think that that's a possibility for men of a, late, a later generation to confront some of the things that have been taken away from them because of the incredible policing of masculinity that happens in this country. But then why do we not look at little children or, you know, children who have not even been born or who are six years old or who are 10 years old and so maybe we can really intervene at whatever stage it is and say, we're going to make the world different for you. We're going to make it so it's less painful for you to navigate your way through it and so that you will cause less pain to other people. Mm. Yeah. So, Osha, you are the stepfather for a, of a teenage girl. Yes. And you have a baby on the way. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Yes. How many times have you been asked whether you're having a boy or a girl? Uh, people ask us all the time. And um, Audrey and I did the uh, fetal DNA test the other day, so we got all the chromosomal tests back, because I'm from shitty Eastern European stock, so, you know, anyone that's got any, we're fragile. And um, <laughs> luckily, Audrey's Fijian, and, she, you know, she's built to last. Um, <laughs> so we're fine there, but they gave us a little envelope with the, with the XX or XY in it, and we gave it to Georgia. So Georgia has the envelope. Georgia knows. Georgia's we, your daughter? Uh, stepdaughter, yes. Yeah. Um, and she's here tonight, so she knows. So if you ask her, she might tell you. Um, <laughs> so she knows, but we don't. And I, I, think, that's, I think that's really cool. That's really cool. She, she's planning a moment where she will tell us, um, which I'm looking forward oh, to. Please don't say it's going to be a gender re reveal party where you cut into the lasagna <laughs> and it's pink or blue. I think, uh, she's, I think she's planning um, dressing us all in white and shooting us with water pistols with food colouring or something. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, whatever. It's, I'm, I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting thing about the gender reveal because, I, I, and full disclosure, I asked Osha backstage if he'd found out the sex. Because it's one of those... It's your first question. It is. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, and we're all imperfect people and we all engage in the politics of our environment in imperfect ways. And I can logically know that gender and sex are not the same thing and no child can actually be assigned to gender before birth. And yet it's one of the questions that you ask, have you found out the sex? Yeah. Because it's, 
it's, we, we have this impulse to humanize a life before it arrives without allowing the space for that life to humanize itself. Mm. And I, I don't think that people who have gender reveal parties are bad people, and I don't think that they come to, come to their, their desire to have a gender reveal because they an, are shitty people. <laughs> I think partly it's because we live in a capitalist world and it's another reason to have a party. <laughs> and also because at some point along the way, and I, can't, I haven't figured out how this happened, and I'm sure someone has written about it in ways much smarter than I have, but at some point, this, this necessity to introduce the, the gender reveal and the gender coding early on arose in a way that it hadn't, we hadn't had it before. And partly that is maybe access to, you know, the ability to find out the sex. Um, but I just think it takes a lot of, it's a lot of unpacking of our mm. own assumptions. And, and prejudices. And prejudices. And even people who, you know, I even, with, with me, who I feel is quite well ahead of the bell curve on a lot of these topics, has to find myself, I have to check myself a lot with the language that I use, you know. Um, because you want to encourage um, resilience in your children and you want to encourage courage in them. But I have to stop myself from saying to my son, oh, you know, that was very brave of you or you're a good, b brave big boy. I don't know, if I, had a, if I had a child who was assigned female at birth, I probably would feel different about instilling those values in her. And I might feel more kind of like saying to her, oh, you're, you're really brave. It was actually a really empowering thing. Mm. But it's questioning like, how much do you pull back on that stuff because you don't want to, to As you reiterate the issues and the problems. Yeah, as you said, though, like we're, 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 we have uh, goals to be a certain kind of person, but we're all imperfect. We all yeah. are, you know, products of our own upbringing, and we'll find ourselves saying things, and then, oh, hang on, recorrect. That's part of being a parent. Yeah. It's okay. And, you know, I'm, I'm stoked that... Constantly you know, feeling guilt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just stoked that this kid's going to have, you know, yeah. three of us raising it, which is uh, really exciting. So, Osha, you said something interesting um, earlier, which was that one of... You, part of your experience of masculinity growing up mm. was this kind of performative yeah. element. Yeah. Um, like, you know, being a guy for the guys and, and doing, you know, um, guy things for the approval mm. of the guys. And, and I guess it came to... made me think of something that happened this week where, you know, um, the National Rugby League is once again embroiled in what they're calling a scandal summer, but I don't know how it's different from, you know, every other summer that has gone before. I think that maybe social media has just made these things more trackable um, and, and more traceable. But one of the players who, um, who was... I read an interview with, with one of the players um, who said, it's just a guy thing. It's not just in the NRL. In a team environment, guys just want the admiration of their teammates. There's always a hierarchy in clubs. Sharing this stuff is a way of being welcomed into the group, and the guys are just trying to belong. And I guess that sort of made me think of the whole men in groups thing. I mean, you host The Bachelor yeah. and The Bachelorette, and one of the <laughs> dynamics of The Bachelorette is men in groups. And I'm not for a second saying that any of those contestants are behaving in the same way that um, NRL players do at all. 
But do you see those kind of dynamics bubbling up? Oh, absolutely, and any any man in the room knows. I don't I don't know if it's some sort of evolutionary thing that when men are in groups, a hierarchy forms. It might have been a thing that we do to create efficiency in hunting and gathering, I don't know what, but it, you see it happen all the time. A, real, a perfect example is on, if anybody watched I'm a Celebrity, get me out of here, um, there was like, it was six guys, six girls, they're all sitting around, chat, 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 and then suddenly an AFL superstar shows up, and all of a sudden it's like, <gasps> and boom, he's their leader. And then it's running, jumping, climbing trees, let's go hiking, let's light fires. <laughs> <laughs> they were like... <laughs> It was. They're instantly like, oh, we're going on an adventure now. And, like, and that happens. It just, it, it just happens. Now, that can be used for in incredibly positively. Um, but yes, it can also then descend quite quickly. And uh, generally, in my experience, uh, groups of men, uh, <laughs> the more of them and the more alcohol you put into a situ situation, the, the stupider it becomes. Uh, <laughs> quite quickly, um, but the self-regulation, I'm 45 in two weeks, and the self-regulation around the group of my friends now is quite significant. You know, if anyone's being an idiot, people get pulled up quite quickly. Mm -hmm. But in my 20s, um, a quiet afternoon at the pub could become Lord of the Flies within about 45 minutes. <laughs> and any bloke in the room's like, oh yeah, I've been there. I've been to that party. You know, it, can, it just happens. And before you know it, you're like, oh, this didn't expect this. Um, and out of nowhere, it just suddenly just swirled into this kind of de-evolutionary de behavior where you just suddenly you're knuckle dragging, like, what am I, why is my shirt off? Why am I throwing things? You know, <laughs> before you know it, you're doing things that you didn't expect yourself to be doing. It's really weird. It, it sounds really weird. <laughs> <laughs> it is. But what, do you, what do you feel, Vaughn, about those... Yeah, how does that play out too, in and the kind you, of queer community? Um, yeah, it's, it's this thing, like, uh, sometimes I'll walk into a room and... Oh, we, we've actually spoken, we mm. spoke last night about um, men having female friends. And I feel like I tend... A lot of my male... Actually, if not all my male friends, I've really culled my Facebook list. Um, <laughs> They, I feel like all the male friends I have are real, have really good female friends. Mm. And, and they're able to have these healthy relationships with these females. And some are straight, some are queer. Uh, it kind of doesn't, I don't think that um, is really the focus of that. But I sometimes feel like I go into a room um, and there'll be a man <laughs> in, in the room. And I would just get this like shiver of like, whoa, why am I standing straighter? You know, it's just like, you, there's this, you know, there's this look mm. that you give each other where it's like, mm. yeah. like <laughs> and then it's like, uh, and then it's me like running because because <laughs> I can't compete. But um, but yeah, it's it's it is a very I think it's a very visceral thing. It's a very physical thing as well that sometimes it is hard to to talk about in like in actual words as well. It, it's an emotion, and I feel like. I feel like as we're going onwards, we're, we're kind of getting better at communicating some of those feelings as well, so, yeah. I mean, group, groups of gay men have masculine codes just as much as groups of straight men, right? They might be different codes, but yeah. they're still... And if, if anything, like, I mean, that has a whole intrinsic set of issues in itself. Like, um, you know, when you look at, I guess, like, the porn industry and, and see, like, how men are represented there, or in, like, in gay culture, how men are kind of represented... Um, you know, very like white male, very toned. Um, it kind of doesn't leave you. It's weird the the idea of representation in that sense as well, because you're kind of like you have that disconnect with a community that should be inclusive, but is still even creates a barrier around you as well. I yeah, 
Mm. I've kind of had experiences where I've gone into, I guess, like very inclusive safe spaces um, where I've even felt judged. And that was really surprising. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's really interesting. Oh, sorry, oh. I didn't mean to interrupt the applause. <laughs> 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 um, this different way of socialization, broadly speaking, the socialization of masculinity versus the socialization of femininity, particularly in a patriarchal world, is that men have never been made to feel ashamed about circling around each other, I, I, except in a homophobic way, of course, because homophobia and misogyny are so intrinsically linked. <clears throat> But if you, if you circle around each other in like just, oh, we're all men together kind of way and alpha masculinity and we'll like bow down to the leader. Yeah, the boys. Yeah, the boys. Oh. Yeah, the boys. <laughs> yeah, the boys. Don't dog the boys. You know, the way that internet culture especially kind of like makes those values, which mm -hmm. are questionable anyway, particularly toxic, is it's, it's really easy and common for men to kind of like band together. And for me, one of the most, um, I, I don't like men who don't have female friends. I don't trust them, I don't feel comfortable around them. Um, and one of the tells of, you know, I, I've received quite a, a lot of online abuse, and one of the tells for me is always if the person who's issued that abuse, their Facebook profile picture is, it's usually a young guy, is them in like a circle of dudes. You know, that they need to, like, broadcast somehow that they're part of a pack. They're mm. part of a wolf pack. And I feel like men are allowed that, um, as, as toxic as it can be and as harmful as it can be, as, and as harmful as it often is, men are allowed to circle around each other in that way. Whereas women who negotiate and circle around each other and support each other, that's a coven. Yeah. <laughs> and we're not allowed to do that. We're, that's a suspicion, you know, because, oh, if you're spending time with other women, well, what, you're just supporting them just because they're women. And why aren't we allowed, why can't we be there? Why can't we be involved? And I think that this is, th these are really interesting elements to how the idea of toxic masculinity then goes from being just men spending time together to rugby players mm. sharing non-consensual, non-consensually filmed videos or fucking adfer recruits or whatever it might be, any kind of, any kind of male-dominated field where mm. the homosocial bonding that occurs within that usually happens over the degradation of another person. Yes. And, and particularly, person women. Yeah. Yeah. particularly women. Particularly women. So, oh, so that, that sort of, um, that need to kind of like, it, it comes back to the way that Kindness and softness is beaten out of little boys mm -hmm. and made to feel anathema to their status as men. That the only way that they can bond with other men as they grow older in, in an intimate way is through this sort of like using this conduit of someone who's being humiliated. Because it's impossible for them in the society that we live in for them to, if I'm a guy, to hug you and to, and to have genuine platonic intimacy or physical touch. And so the, the, breaking that down and saying, like, how do we instruct and encourage and teach men to have intimate bonds with each other that where intimacy is divorced from sexuality sometimes but also can be sexual mm -hmm. and it not be a slight on their masculinity? How do we, like, cross that bridge so that we actually create an environment in which all of this damage is not necessitated by the fact that you two just want to give each other a fucking hug, <laughs> right?
<laughs> so, we have a very short... <laughs> hug, 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 hug. I just want to, I just want to point out my friend, my friend James Matheson used to always make a joke and say when two blokes hug, you always look for the, I'm not gay. <laughs> but that's toxic masculinity. Oh right there. One did it and I oh. did it. I just held him. He gave me the tap. The shoulder tap. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is, it's, it's, um, it's the word mate drives me insane <laughs> because I feel like when men go in groups like that, you, you, you actually feel more alone in those settings sometimes. And whenever someone, when another guy is just like, oh, mate, it's a weird word because it's like an, it's an invitation. It's like, hey, friend, but it's also like mate. Mm. as well. And I find that um, I just don't like anyone who's... I think, I think strangers <laughs> calling you mate is like, uh, yeah. you know somebody for at least 20 minutes before you... Yeah. Ask <laughs> hey, we have um, a very short amount of time for questions, but we have microphones there and there and in the back circle there and there. If you do have a question, if you could make your way to the mics now and we'll try, we won't have time for that many, but we'll try and get to as many as we can. Um, I'm interested in the way that we form archetypes of masculinity, you know, that, that there is. And I think that that's kind of part of a bigger picture which is around kind of, you know, almost entitlement, you know. We have the archetype of the guy who's worked all his life to be a lawyer and is about to be acquitted, uh, sorry, about to be um, made a Supreme Court judge who kind of loses it, Brett Kavanaugh style, when he's confronted, right? We have R. Kelly this week, you know, going <sighs> mental in front of Gail King and, 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 and these sorts of perversions of what it means to be a strong man. Do you think that they're happening more or again, are they just more public now? Osha, what do you reckon? Um, I would say that, you know, we, it, it, you do have to kind of deconstruct about how the things that get our attention make money, all right? And things like R. Kelly standing up, looming over Gal King, that photograph, people are going to click on it, all right? And that's going to make the... More than that, though. Come on. It I is. No, it is. It is true. Um, and, you know, when... So that sort of representation is definitely in, in the public eye. But, you know, when I think about, you know, representations of masculinity in, in, in the public eye, particularly in, in the television industry where I work, um, that... Like, was one particular show I work on. Um, it's a show about the lifeguards at Bondi Beach. Um, it's called Bondi Rescue. They're just big, strapping dudes. They call each other mate. Um, they got tattoos from their earlobes down to their ankles, and all they want to do is help people. And they could go and do jobs that are, you know, far more lucrative. But all they want to do is help people. And I've, I've worked with these guys for a long time now. And like, the, the surf will be literally drowning people, and people will be dying, and they will paddle out. And that's, you know, that's something that is out there in, in the public eye quite a bit, yet at the same time, you know, um, we want to we be able to see, you know, the, the parts of our society that we might not agree with. And so, particularly on, like on, the, on the show like I work on, um, there was a, a moment last year on, on The Bachelorette where one of the boys was quite clearly, um, you know, people kind of gave it the opinion that this man was gaslighting our, our hero. And my wife, Audrey, was watching it. And she pretty much paused the DVR and then turned to G, my stepdaughter, and said, see that? If a man ever does that to you, don't walk, run. And so I think, that, I think there is some value in having that in the public eye, like, so we can kind of all decide together, yeah, actually, no, we're not okay with that. 
And so there is some value, at least I feel, in, ex in exhibiting it and showing it rather than trying to censor it and, and, and not show it. Um, and critiquing it, I suppose. Yes, precisely, mm. precisely. What do you think, Clementine? Um, well, I think that going back to what you said about Bondi Rescue, mm. this is, it's interesting that the, the narrative is that these are, these are blokes, Aussie blokes, mm. they, and they want to help people. They're not nursing, though, are they? And that's that's great. Yeah, they're, they're not. not they're, not, they're not in nursing. They're not in aged care. <laughs> and and you know, it's <laughs> it is it is it's it's, un, it's unquestionable that probably what brings them to being a lifeguard is they say I want to help people, and I'm not questioning that. But you, we have to be able to critique what it is about the paternalistic idea of the man that rescues everyone, you know, because, and this is one of the problems that women have, the gaslighting that your that Audrey is instructing Georgia about is also includes the sense that we're not in control of our own narratives. So when women talk about how uneven and unequal the world is in misogyny and entrenched systemic oppression, and they're met with men online saying, oh, well, look at this image of this guy rescuing a woman from a flood and you talk about toxic masculinity, why do you go tell that to all the World War II soldiers? <laughs> and you think, actually, like, a part of this ideal that we have of masculinity, toxic or not, is that men exist to protect everyone else, women and children. And it's a nice idea in theory, quote, unquote, but actually it doesn't allow for any kind of autonomous behavior from the people that they're supposed to, that they assert themselves as protectors over or allow for any self-determination. Because when women say, this is how I protect myself, they're like, fuck you for making me feel bad about myself. I'm a man and I'm, I, didn't, I didn't do that to you. And you're like, well, I don't, I don't want men to protect me. Mainly, I've said this before, women don't want men to protect them. They want men to stop protecting each other. Mm. And that is about... That is about the self-determination that, that we are entitled to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I also agree that, you know, reality TV can be very instructive. I'm a big fan of Married at First Sight. And uh -huh. <laughs> there's about five different people on there that are committing domestic violence know, right now. I know, it's really true. Not all of them are men. <laughs> so, um, do we have any questions? The lights are too bright. I can't see. Um, it's definitely okay. mic number two. Mic number two. Hi, I'm Morgan. I'm 15. Um, I still, like, boys my age, like, I still hear a lot of, like, schoolyard talk that's, like, quite offensive. And when I go to stand up for other girls and other women that are in, like, in that situation, it becomes, like, I'm an angry feminist or I'm attacking them and it's a bad thing, like, that's mm. reflected badly towards me. And I was just wondering how we start to have the conversations right from the beginning um, to stop that, like, culture of happening and to be able to have conversations with them and not be attacked mm. as, like, an angry feminist or that it's uh, my problem when I'm trying to address, like, their behaviour that's wrong. That's very good. Um, I feel like I can answer this. Yeah, I think the angry feminist on the panel can... Uh, firstly, you're amazing for wanting to take that fight on. I certainly was not at that point when I was 15 years old. I was very much at the appeasing all the boys around me and terrified that they would 
you know, think that I was not worthy of their attention. Um, so congrats to you. I also wish I could tell you, oh, here's how you do that. Here's how you have those conversations with them so that they go, oh, I'm sorry I've been such an asshole to you, I'll stop. <laughs> Unfortunately, the tough love and reality that I have to give you is that the more you threaten their position in the world, or their idea of their position in the world, the harder they're gonna come back at you. And I will say this honestly, that the people I dislike dealing with the most, the people who caused me the most stress and uh, fear are 15-year-old white boys. <laughs> I don't like going to schools and speaking to boys or even schools where a particular kind of boy is gonna be present because they have no, they have no life experience for a start, but that doesn't stop them from thinking that they can tell you what life is. And they, they don't want to listen, and they're so, like, they've watched so many fucking hours of YouTube videos of men saying, the wage gap's not real, <laughs> that they think that they're experts. And they're emboldened by all of that beautiful confidence that we all have as teenagers, which is great, except it's being directed and channeled in the wrong, in the, in the wrong way. So what I always say to girls like you asking that question is, Accept that you probably are not going to change a lot of their minds, and so direct your energy elsewhere. It is much more powerful for you to go and speak to the other girls in your year level and the other people who, who seem like they might be allies to you and say, let's form a coalition. Let's talk about these issues. We don't need to engage with these people. We don't need to convince them because trying to convince them will just break your heart. And I say that from like a place of so much experience. It will break your heart trying to convince a certain kind of man to view you as a human. And... That hurt me. But if you, can get, if you can get other girls on your side, you might not be able... It's, it's, not, it's not like I'm saying to you, go and get 20 girls and you can go and, like, force them to believe you. But what you, what you do is you create a space in which your understanding of the world and your experience of your life will be taken seriously and will be listened to and will be respected and where you don't have to justify every thought that you come up with. You don't have to convince someone that your experience of sexual harassment on the weekend, A, was, was bad and B, even happened. Because you have a space of people that like, understand you and they see you and that will be more powerful to you in the immediate short term and in the long term than trying to change a single boy's mind, trust me. Microphone number four, please. So my question kind of draws on a couple of aspects of the conversation. So in particular, Osha, you're talking about how you feel that in some ways those examples of toxic, 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 nah, words. toxic masculinity on, that we've seen sometimes on Bachelor, Bachelorette, and, and how that can actually be valuable for us to see publicly shown. And also, Clementine, you talking about how um, we all engage in these socio-political environments in imperfect ways. I was wondering, you know, on the flip side from the value of having the show out there, there are a lot of shows in our um, media environment that, whether deliberately or not, subtly or overtly, may seem to reaffirm or foster toxic masculinity and female objectification that stems from that. I was wondering what you guys think of the obligation on we as media consumers, you know, or when we 
imperfectly engaging with that, find ourselves enjoying that stuff? Are we obligated to then reject it anyway to send a message, or is there a way that we can reconcile that cognitive dissonance? This one's well, that's a good question. Right? Yeah. That's a really good question. Um, Get that woman on the panel. Yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would say, like, you know, what's interesting about reality television is that it, it, we watch it, and it's interesting, because, like, right here is where we did all the idol stuff, right on this stage. You know, we watch it, and we just can't believe that this is true because it doesn't, you know, we're not the kind of person that would apply to one of these shows, and yet there is definitely a kind of person that applies to this show, and here they are. And so when they do and say things, we can't, we can't believe that actually happened. But I promise you, we just film it. Um, I would guess, you know, if you want to reconcile it, try to understand that I don't have an unmarked van full of ball gowns and hair dryers abducting people on the street and dropping them off at a mansion. People come to us, you know, I can't, sorry, your microphone's not on. Give us one second. Hit me. I do quickly want to say I asked this question as a tragic Bachelor fan. Oh, <laughs> That when you, as, as much as what Clementine was saying earlier, when you, when you watch reality television, understand that there is a, a vast amount of agency of the people that are on camera. It is a big decision to go, I'm going to put four months of my life on hold. I'm going to go and do this thing, whether it be lose a lot of weight or go around the world or whatever the show is, and that is their choice. And, you know, go, okay, well, this man, this woman, whoever they are, is actively doing this thing of their own accord. They are willingly into it. There is a lot of uh, psych that happens beforehand. Um, we don't let anyone on that hasn't cleared psych. Um, so that, okay, the, a bunch of people have gone, they're fit to go, and here they go. And they're supported the whole way through, and then they're supported afterwards. So I would... Um, I would, I would hope that you, you know, that, that might be a way to, to perhaps enjoy it. I think, was it Amy, Amy Poehler, if you look it up, I won't bring it up now, but Amy Poehler wrote a really wonderful thing about that she watches porn, her husband watches porn, and uh, that it took her a little while to kind of unpack it, but like, everyone there is, they're there, you know, deliberately, they're doing it, okay. Um, so I would, I would maybe, not that what we do is anything to do with what Amy Poehler watches, but um, <laughs> that people do have agency. People do have agency, and they willingly go into things, and that... Certainly in the shows that I've worked on, that we're not in the business of exploiting people. Um, I, you asked me that question too, so I can answer that, right? Yeah. Um, I, I have a slightly different take, and I say that as a very uh, enthusiastic reality television watcher. In fact, I'm going to tell everyone, Edwina and I are long-term friends because we've been on the same Survivor message chat thread for about seven years. It's true. It has about 20 people on it, and it's just, a, it's just a messenger thread on Facebook. It's not even a group. It's just a messenger thread. We just go back like seven years talking about different seasons. I love, I love reality TV. It's my, my time to switch off. But I, I don't think that it's as simple as saying people have agency and it's their choice to do it. Because choice in a capitalist world is so dependent on what is influencing that choice. Like, we, none of us make free choices. And that, doesn't, that isn't to say that our choices shouldn't be defended or we shouldn't be respected for the choices that we, we've made, uh, that we've hopefully made, um, determining how, we, how best we can navigate our way through the world that we live in. But, but no choice is without influence. And I do feel complicit when I watch Married at First Sight. Um, I, I don't feel complicit enough to stop watching it. <laughs> and I guess 
in the way that we all get defensive about our choices, I get annoyed when people are like, why are you watching this trash? Um, or like somehow this expectation that I, because I, I hopefully do, you know, air quotes, serious work, that I'm not allowed to check out at the end of the day and just watch some trash. Mm. Um, and I remember someone recently said to me, I, I was tweeting about maths, and someone said, because uh, I have a Patreon account, which is like the new thing that everyone does where people can donate to you to like create work. And someone said, I didn't donate to you to, to read these tweets about reality TV. And I was like, well, you don't own me, you know? <laughs> Whatever you've you donated is probably not like first? a full-time salary that then I can just give you what you want. And I think it's interesting how the choices that we... Like sometimes I choose not to talk publicly about the, sh the trashy, shitty things that I enjoy, because I don't want someone to be like, well, that doesn't sound very feminist of you. But Osher, I think that you make a bigger point, that these shows actually do reflect the culture that we live in, and by seeing these, we can critique in a way that, that, you know, it's there for us. I mean, you know, you wouldn't necessarily be hanging out with the people that are on maths or on The Bachelor. But then how much, I mean, the other, the other flip side of that is, yes, you can use maths as a way to, to discuss what, and it, it is actually very valuable this season alone <laughs> in talking about what gaslighting looks like across a range of different areas. And I'm sorry, Mike, you're fucking gross. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but on the other hand, like how much of it... I don't, I don't think either of us really have an adequate answer for your question because we're all imperfect people that enjoy what we enjoy and when we want to, we check out and we say, well, but this is my hour off and I want to enjoy maps. It's like that Onion article, Feminist Takes 30 Minutes Off to Watch TV. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Microphone number three, please. Um, so my question goes out to the whole panel, but it's a bit more directed at OSHA because it's in the category of mental health. Um, so I come from a family where mental health issues are a, a big thing. Lots of people have them. It's probably in our genes. And chances are I could be passing that on to my kids do it too if I ever have kids. And so I kind of just want to know you as an expectant father and then Clementine as well having a son. If you do have a son and he presumably continues to identify as a boy, um, are there any things that you think you're going to try and do in particular to entrench in him that he can talk about his mental health issues? Like when he lives in a society where no matter what you tell him, how loving his home environment is, he lives in a social world that will tell him the complete opposite. Um, that is a, that's a really good question. Um, and people, people do ask me this a lot because um, I write in my book about going to see psychiatrists when I was five years old. I actually had this flashback that I was in a cab and I remember being put in a Kingswood cab in Brisbane to go into the city to see my psychiatrist in 1979. Um, it was like the psychiatrist in Brisbane. And so I would say to people when, when they're quite little, uh, that didn't help me at all. What would have helped me is learning breathing techniques at least to um, uh, regulate my own emotions so that whatever was confusing me, they might be concepts beyond my grasp at the age of four or five or whatever, but at least I knew how to take control of the feeling in my body. And because it's when you get those icky feelings, you want to make it go away, so you try to do something to control the situation, which usually involves kicking something or throwing something or something like that. So that's what I would say. And I, I guess the other thing is when, when the kid's old enough, just try as hard as possible, whatever, you know, the, boy, the, the child will pee sitting up or standing down or standing down, sitting up, I don't know. Um, I'm so afraid to talk about gender next to you. <laughs> 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 
I'm going to get all my pronouns so wrong. Um, uh, it doesn't, I like, I, I, when people ask me what we're having, I just like, human. That's all I care about is the child human. How can we make the child more human? By making the child respect other humans. Like, and just try to make sure that child, if that child's having a hard time um, with somebody else, just go, okay, so that person's doing something you disagree with. All right, that's fine. But understand that that person has a favorite color, has a favorite shirt, has a favorite person they like to be with, has a favorite place to sit, has a favorite food, has a favorite movie. One of those things is probably going to be the same as yours. Um, so just understand that that's a human doing a human, having a human experience that's doing a thing that you are uncomfortable with and just trying as hard as we can to make sure that this little human being sees other humans as humans and of value and that they have no greater or less value than you and just trying to, I mean, this is all altruistic. It's 14 weeks of a fetus. It's inside my wife right now. So I don't know what it's going to be. Um, so I guess, you know, that's as much as I can do. And, and I, that's indeed what we, you know, we, we try to do. I've, only been, I've been in the job for five years as a stepfather, and Audrey basically leads the charge there uh, with G, and she does an extraordinary job of, of, of that. And, um, but certainly, like, to your point, because I, I just, like, the big thing when we didn't quite touch on this is that how extraordinarily limiting this then becomes for the man that's affected by it, because you're emotional interaction with the world is just so polarized. It's, it's, it's fear manifesting as anger and rage or just shut down and I don't want to hear anything. And then you just kind of miss out on the rich, extraordinary spectrum of life's experience. And then it, you miss out on you know, the, 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 the temperature of the air in the opera house or you miss out on the, it's a warm day or, or you, know, you just miss out on so much and therefore you can't contribute as much because you're limited to these, this behavior or that behavior and it, that kind of sucks because then you turn around and you're like 40 going, well, fuck, that was boring. You know, <laughs> I missed out on so much. I, look, time has flown. We're over time already. Thank you for sticking around. I'm so sorry for those that have been waiting at the microphone. If I could take your questions, I promise I would, but I'm going to get assassinated by our stage manager if I don't <laughs> clear this right now. Um, I think that really what we need to take out from today is, as you've said, Osha, we are humans. Be kind to other humans. Be nice to your kids. Don't put expectations on them. Have a really good evening at All About Women. Thank you very much. For <laughs>